yeah, so this is now on. I'd like to call this session to, uh, uh, to order. There are actually many more people here than it looks like because uh, this is being broadcast into some overflow rooms and where people are able to have food and drink. And for some reason, they think uh, eating is a good thing. And uh, so they're with us in spirit, uh, if, uh, if not actually in the same room. Uh, anyone who thinks this is an election law panel is going to be sorely disappointed. We are not doing election law uh, uh, today at all, but we are doing freedom of speech and raising one of the, uh, I think, thorniest problems for freedom of speech, uh, both under the First Amendment and in liberal theory altogether. Even if you, if you think back to John Locke, uh, children represent uh, the sort of the soft underbelly of of liberal uh, theory because I think almost everyone uh, agrees that the state cannot be uh, as uh, uh, standoffish or as, as respectful of privacy when the interests of children are involved uh, as they are in uh, other areas of life. Uh, and the question for us today is how does this principle of some state greater state uh, authorization for state intervention apply in the case of speech between parents and children. Uh, this uh, arises most commonly uh, with respect to custody disputes uh, when the, when the uh, family law courts are often required to intervene. But uh, as you'll see from the discussion today, come, come up in uh, other contexts as well. Uh, we have a, a panel which is uh, supremely uh, well qualified to speak to this issue. Let me introduce them extremely briefly. Uh, first on my left, uh, Professor Eugene uh, Volek, familiar to many people here as a professor of law UC at uh, UCLA Law School, uh, former law clerk to uh, Justice O'Connor and to Judge uh, Kaczynski, uh, familiar to many people as the chief conspirator on the uh, a well-known law blog, The Volick uh, Conspiracy, and an extraordinarily uh, prolific um, uh, uh, scholar. Uh, one of his pieces most directly related to today's topic is called Parent-Child Speech and Child Custody Speech Restrictions. Uh, he'll be speaking first and will be uh, offering some uh, 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 PowerPoints uh, as well. Then uh, after uh, Gene will be uh, Professor Jim Dwyer from the uh, uh, law school at William and Mary uh, College of Law, uh, where he teaches family law and related uh, issues and has written several books um, uh, related to today's subject, including uh, Religious Schools versus Children's Rights uh, and uh, a recent book coming out. I don't know, I guess it has come out from Cambridge Press uh, entitled Relationship Rights of Children. Um, and then finally, uh, 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 Jay Seculo, who is one of the leading Supreme Court advocates of our day and is chief counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice. So welcome, gentlemen, and Eugene, if you'd get us uh, started. Thanks very much. I'm told that if I just do some magic with somebody's help, uh, the PowerPoint will go on. Yes. Um, so let's first talk briefly about what, uh, what the actual rules are in practice and how they play out. Not sometimes, uh, but 
often enough and with, under the authority of the relevant legal rule. The legal rule is the sole criterion in child custody decisions is the best interest and welfare of the child. And that can be enforced and applied in certain, several ways. The chief three ways are decisions about which parent gets custody. So if two parents get divorced, the, uh, who gets custody and how much custody and how much visitation rights the other parent has is supposed to be decided, generally speaking, based on the best interests of the child. Sometimes a court may supplement its decision with an order that you get custody or you get visitation rights, but on condition you not say certain things to the child or you not do certain things with the child. Or alternatively, you can, the court can order the parent indeed do, indeed say or do certain things. Uh, that's the way the family law test plays out. One other thing to keep in mind is that in most jurisdictions, not all, but in most, uh, that test is uh, uh, applied by the trial court judge, the family court judge, with modest review by the Court of Appeals, uh, that uh, it's a discretionary decision, and the Court of Appeals usually reviews it for abuse of discretion or clear error. So as a consequence, you can, what kinds of decisions are made and what they're based on uh, uh, um, ends up depending a lot on what judge you draw because the test leaves so much discretion to judges. So one kind of restriction that you see is restrictions on teaching supposedly harmful ideology. And under the rubric of the, of the, uh, the substantive test, the family law test, those are quite plausible decisions because I do think that it's not in the child's best interest to be taught certain views. Certainly when I'm raising my children, together with my wife, uh, uh, we're trying to teach those children certain things because we think they're in the best interest of the child to know and to, to believe. And uh, we would not teach other things. In fact, we teach the children to reject those things. Uh, I do think that there are more problems when a court makes that kind of decision, as they historically have. Atheism, for example, has been a factor either in terms of we deny custody to this atheist or we prefer the more religious parent. From 1817 on to the present, there are, in the last couple of decades, there are, uh, I think, about 70 decisions based on who is the more religious parent. Uh, Nazism in the 1940s is pacifism or disrespect for the flag in the 1940s, communism in the 30s and 50s. In the 1970s, it was advocacy of, of uh, um, gay rights, uh, not just homosexuality of a parent, but specifically a parent was ordered not to take the child, let's say, to political events where, uh, where uh, gay rights were, were supported. Uh, interestingly, as you might gather, things having changed today, uh, there, there are occasional decisions uh, um, that, uh, uh, favor, uh, that disfavor a parent in certain ways because the parent is hostile to gay rights, especially when the other parent is gay. Uh, racism, so there are orders ordering the parent not to say racist things to the child or disfavoring a p one parent over the other because they're racist and the like. Uh, likewise, there are some things that are not as ideological, but for example, you often hear courts talking, well, you expose the child to R-rated movies or Maxim magazine or something like that, uh, whether sexually themed or violent movies. Um, that, that was one category. Second category is restriction on harsh criticism of the other parent. Sometimes it's outright slander, so it's unprotected speech, but often it's general bad-mouthing, expression of derogatory opinion about the other parent. Sometimes it's a little more complex. There's one case, for example, which involves facts, telling a 12-year-old daughter, a mother's telling a 12-year-old daughter that her father wasn't her biological father. In fact, it was quite true. But, a parent, but the court concluded that that was against the child's best interest. Understandably, so I do think it's against the child's best interest. I think she shouldn't have done it. The interesting question is to what extent can courts restrict that? Um, 
likewise, there are opinions that implicitly criticize the other parent, but because they convey a broader ideology. So I mentioned that restriction on a parent who, parents anti-gay views. The, this involved a couple, uh, there was a lesbian couple that had had children together, um, and uh, the, uh, um, when they broke up, one, the custodial uh, mother actually became a evangelical Christian. Uh, and so the, uh, the, um, the other mother, and she really was another mother, she raised the child uh, um, uh, from birth uh, and uh, uh, was considered under state law a psychological parent, had, I think quite understandably, parental rights, uh, uh, got the court to order um, uh, uh, the custodial parent to make sure there's nothing in the religious upbringing of the minor child is exposed to that can be considered homophobic. So that really meant no traditionalist Christianity. Uh, ultimately, this order was dissolved by the Colorado Supreme Court. But as a matter of best interests, even if you don't think this order is in the child's best interest, I think we have to all recognize that a court might so conclude without just without completely flouting the best interest standard, because it leaves the judge with the discretion to decide that. Finally, there's restriction in religious teaching contrary to the custodial parents. So one pa- custodial parent is raising the child, let's say, uh, Catholic, and tries to order, uh, uh, get the court to order uh, the other parent not to take the child during visitation to Methodist services. Um, I want to argue that there are serious First Amendment problems here. There are free speech clause problems with orders not to say things, orders to say things, orders not to expose a child to certain things. Those are pretty direct speech restrictions, speech compulsions, or custody decisions based on speech. Just as you can't be taxed extra or you can't be denied other rights based on your speech as a general matter. Likewise, I think when there's a custody decision which denies you one of the most fundamental rights you've got, uh, I shouldn't say fundamental, that's a legal conclusion, one of the most important rights you've got uh, uh, based on your speech, that presumptively violates the First Amendment. Maybe that can be rebutted for some reason, but that is a strong presumption. Free exercise clause, it turns out, under Employment Division v. Smith, I think adds little. A lot of these cases involve religious speech. But I think it's more, more uh, important uh, as a doctrinal matter to view these as free speech cases and not free exercise cases. Establishment clause may add, may add a little. The analogy is to a case uh, uh, that I draw as a doctrinal matter is the case called Palmer v. Sidoti, which is an equal protection clause case in which a court uh, had considered a parent, one parent's interracial relationship. I, I say a parent's apostrophe. I should say parent apostrophe, yes. One parent, after the divorce, struck up an international relationship and eventually married the man she was dating. And the court said, look, in this community, that's going to be bad for the child. Not because interracial relationships are bad, but because the child will be ostracized. For all I know, the court may have been quite right. This is 1980 Florida. Maybe, he, maybe it was right. But the court said, when a court is making a decision like that, when parents may make all sorts of decisions based on all sorts of factors, but when a court is making that decision, it's... Should, uh, it is limited by the Constitution. They're the Equal Protection Clause, but I think the same thing applies to Free Speech Clause and Establishment Clause. Um, now, let me just very briefly set forth the, the outlines of the argument, because time is short, but then in Q&A we can talk more. First question I think we should ask is, what about parent-child speech in intact families? I think there's broad consensus, not unanimous, but broad consensus it should be protected. But why? I think the reason is, perennial reason in First Amendment uh, uh, debate, and that is a concern that the government could manipulate, uh, could, could use restrictions on parent-child speech in very powerful ways to restrict public debate. Maybe not today, because the children that are being talked to aren't voters yet, but in the next generation. And many a government would dearly love that power. And I think we can all see how that power can be abused. Uh, so I think that's a very serious danger, and the First Amendment should preclude that. Now, what about in broken families? What about in split-up families? 
I want to argue that there's very little that's different in split-up families versus in intact families. One thing people say, well, here, you know, once the family's broken up, it's a condition attached to government benefit of a divorce. I don't think that, that flies at all. Uh, that uh, uh, the government isn't giving you a benefit when it is restricting your access to your child. It used to be you had unlimited access. Now you have more limited access. Um, and uh, uh, the government isn't restricting the benefit. And if, if it's a benefit attached to the seeking out of the divorce, remember the restriction, sorry, the condition is attached to that. Remember the restriction is applicable uh, even to the party that is, doesn't want the divorce. So the party didn't go to court, doesn't want the divorce. The divorce happens, and now the, the party finds, uh, uh, finds uh, himself or herself unable to, to teach her, her religion, let's say, to the child. Uh, there are other arguments, but in the interest of time, because I have only two minutes left, uh, um, uh, I, uh, I'll save them for later. But my basic point is, you have to ask why intact families are different from broken families. And if they're not materially different, then you have to recognize that uh, allowing these restrictions in divorce may give the government much broader power to control parent-child speech more broadly. Um, I want to just then uh, quickly turn uh, to what I would propose. And again, later I can explain why I think so. First, I think the idea is harmful restrictions are, ought not uh, be tolerated. I sympathize with them. As a, in fact, they do sometimes aim and sometimes succeed in avoiding teaching of harmful ideology that is not in the child's best interest. But what one judge can do, the legal system as a whole can do. And especially given how common broken families are uh, today, I think that that would give way too much power to, to, to the government to restrict uh, public debate. I do think it's okay to restrict non-ideological persistent insults of a child. Some of them may be rise level almost to fighting words, but in any case, little is lost by restricting those. Maybe it's not a good idea for a court to intrude into child rearing quite that much, but in some situations, I do think we should prefer a, child, a parent who, who doesn't constantly insult the child over one who does. It's okay, I think, also to restrict non-ideological bad-mouthing of another parent. But I think teaching with implicit criticism of the other parents, such as homosexuality is bad or racism is bad, racism is bad or religiosity is bad, when the other parent is, a, is gay or racist or religious, I think that kind of, that kind of a, a speech has to remain protected. Finally, I think contradictory religious teaching restrictions uh, ought not be upheld. I think there I'm not at all sure that there's that much harm to the child, but in any event, they do pose some danger to public debate, even if applied even-handedly. Uh, and they often also raise an establishment clause problem because they have to require courts to decide what's a contradictory teaching, what's consistent teaching. So sometimes courts find, well, you know, this is Orthodox Judaism and conservative Judaism. They're pretty close. That may be right in some, to some people. Others may disagree. It shouldn't be for courts uh, uh, under the establishment clause to make that decision. So with that, I turn things over uh, to Jim, who I think has a very different view of these things. Mr. Volk and I are less likely to uh, disagree about outcomes and cases than we are about how they should be analyzed. Uh, and I'm going to focus on a type of case where we are more likely to disagree on outcomes, and that's one where we have a fair amount of confidence that parental speech will, in fact, harm a child's temporal interests. And he would say the First Amendment rights of, of the parents uh, might override the welfare of the child, and I would say that the First Amendment ought to be irrelevant. Um, and in the, the basic thrust of my most recent book is that we might gain uh, a better, uh, gain some insight and develop a better approach to thinking about uh, decisions as to formation and structuring of family relationships if we compare relationships between adults with the parent-child relationship. Uh, so let me uh, do that with a kind of case where uh, arguably the state has uh, fairly good evidence that speech is harmful to children. 
So suppose that you have a Mr. and Mrs. Jones uh, who have been married for five years, and they grew up in the same community that uh, held a certain set of beliefs, including the belief that uh, women were put on earth to serve men and uh, that girls should not plan to pursue uh, college education or a career outside the home. Uh, so when they marry, they share this set of beliefs. After a couple of years, they have a child, and they plan to raise the child with that uh, set of beliefs. Um, but after a while, Mrs. Jones rethinks things and changes her mind and rejects those beliefs. And uh, Mr. Jones con continues to express them vehemently to her because he wants her to embrace them again. Uh, but she comes to find this, these views expressed to her repeatedly, uh, demeaning, oppressive, insulting, a uh, threat to her self-esteem. Uh, and for that reason, she decides that she wants a legal separation. So she goes to a court and petitions for a legal separation, and uh, the state grants it readily based simply on her decision that that's what she wants, which in turn is based on a state assumption that what she wants is in her best interest. Okay? And in fact, if she requested it, she might get an immediate divorce rather than having to wait a year or two of separation if she alleges cruelty on the basis of this speech that's directed at her. And in addition to granting her a legal separation or divorce, the local court would be willing uh, to issue orders dictating ownership of the couple's property. Uh, it might, in fact, order the husband to leave the home. Uh, if she established her own home, the court might well issue an order telling him to stay away from it and not to contact her. Right? So the state stands willing to effectuate her relationship choice based on what she thinks is in her best interest uh, quite extensively. And should the husband contest any of these orders by the courts as to the relationship, the residence, and conduct on the grounds that it violates his free speech rights, uh, that it chills his expression and would have a chilling effect on other people like him who are similarly situated and want to express certain views to their spouses, the court would say, you misunderstand the First Amendment, right? You have uh, no right under the First Amendment to make someone else live with you and listen to your views, right? And I assume that Professor Volokh and the rest of the panel would agree that that's correct, right? The court has uh, no business saying husband has a right uh, to free speech that overrides your desire to get out of this relationship. And it wouldn't matter that this has a chilling effect on a broad category of people. All right, so then the court needs to decide the custody of the child. And I take it that Professor Volokh's view is that in making that decision, as to the residence and contact uh, of a child vis-a-vis -a, -vis a parent, vis-a-vis -vis an adult, the court should view Mr. Jones as having a constitutional free speech right that constrains the decision of the court. And in fact, a right that is so powerful that it makes irrelevant potential harm to the child, uh, to this compelled listener uh, from, the, from the adult speech. So when the compelled listener is a fully formed adult, who presumably has the personal capacity to process and reject views that are disagreeable and a threat to self-esteem and psychological welfare. Uh, Professor Pollock would say, yes, there is no competing, uh, there is no uh, right on the part of the speaker to impose those views on the uh, compelled listener. Uh, when, on the other hand, the compelled listener is a helpless little girl uh, who is, does not have the personal resources to process and reject, to critique, uh, the views, then uh, this adult does have 
an entitlement, moral and constitutional, uh, to express uh, his views, to impose his views, uh, and subject a compelled listener to his speech. Uh, and oddly, I think the main reason for this position isn't even necessarily the interests of the parent, but just some broad societal interests in the free flow of ideas, the assumption being that uh, a free marketplace of ideas depends on uh, people being able to impose non-mainstream views on non-autonomous persons, which uh, empirically seems to me quite suspect. Uh, well, let me explain briefly a, a different uh, a competing view and why I think Professor Volokh is wrong in thinking that the First Amendment rights of parents are relevant in this context. Custody decision-making amounts to a state order as to with whom a private individual will live. That is an extraordinary thing for the state to do. Can you imagine the state deciding with whom you will live? It should give any libertarian uh, great discomfort to know that the state is even doing this, right? So you would expect really strong justification for the state uh, making that kind of decision. The only plausible justification for the state doing that is that the private individual uh, being ordered to live with a particular other person needs to live with someone, is incapable of making that decision for herself, uh, and therefore needs an agent, a surrogate, to make the decision for her, right? And that the state is in the best position to do that. Because that is the only plausible justification for the state deciding where a child will live and with whom a child will live, the state's decision-making authority must not extend beyond that justification and, in fact, must be rigidly constrained by it. Accordingly, judges deciding custody should be viewed as operating exclusively as an agent for the child, as a fiduciary acting in behalf of a private individual, making a kind of private decision, very important personal decision, in behalf of someone simply because, only because they can't do it themselves. Historically, this function of the state, acting as uh, an agent and protector of a private individual, an incompetent person, has been characterized as the parent's patriot role. Uh, we contrast this with the police power role in which the state is mediating conflicts among autonomous persons uh, or between autonomous persons in the state and uh, might be promoting broad public policies. Uh, in contrast, in the parents' patriot role, the state acts solely as a surrogate for a private party and should therefore decide solely as that private party would on the same basis as that private party would uh, herself, which presumptively means solely on the basis of that person's best interests and all of them, all of the best interests, all of the interests that that person has without constraint on the basis of third parties' interests, preferences, or supposed rights. Okay, so in, on this view, judges deciding children's custody should maintain an exclusive focus on the welfare of the child and ignore the objections of parents that a particular outcome interferes with or penalizes their child-rearing choices, their speech, or their ideology. You and I, in making our decisions about with whom we're going to live, have a relationship with, we're not constrained by uh, speech concerns, right, about other people's right to speak, and, in fact, our choices routinely have a chilling effect on other people, right? Uh, this is uh, just a fact of life uh, that we need to accept. So, in a sense, when it acts in a parent's patriot role, the state steps outside the Constitution, right, which is kind of remarkable, uh, to the extent that it's not constrained by constitutional rights of persons other than the child. 
acting only as a fiduciary. This idea might seem remarkable, even untenable, but it's really not unprecedented. In fact, it's the model that we apply to state decision-making of a very similar nature with respect to incompetent adults. Courts regularly make decisions about guardianship for incompetent adults and for the uh, decision-making authority and conduct of guardians for incompetent wards. Uh, and in that context, it is accepted that free speech rights or other constitutional rights of applicants for the guardianship role uh, are just inapposite, are out of place. You're told this is the role, here are the terms, take it or leave it. You have no constitutional rights that requires us to change the terms. Okay. And I might also mention that it's a very different context. Uh, we also recognize that when a state deals with non-citizens, with aliens, uh, it steps outside the Bill of Rights to some extent. Uh, so the notion of the state acting outside the Constitution is not entirely uh, aberrational. Similarly, with respect to uh, restrictions on parental conduct uh, in child-rearing, uh, the state also acts in the parent's patriot role as a surrogate for the child and imposes conditions on adults interacting with children that are comparable to those that a spouse might put on another spouse. Might say, I'll, you know, I'll be in a relationship with you and ultimately marry you if you accept. I don't want to hear this. Right? Don't say these things. Uh, and if you're not willing to restrict yourself in that way, then go away. Right? Then we won't have a relationship. I think mature people recognize that that's the way it goes with relationships among adults, right? But for some reason, we have this idea in our heads that when the relationship is with a child, uh, anything goes. We should be entirely unconstrained uh, in what we say and what we do with respect to them. All right, lastly, uh, let me point out a couple of things to address concerns uh, one might have about the discretion of courts uh, acting solely on the basis of children's best interests. Uh, first, a court deciding custody is still constrained. It's not that getting rid of constitutional rights of parents uh, leaves them entirely unconstrained. There is a standard. There is only one thing they are supposed to be doing, and that is to effectuate the best interest of the child, right? And importantly, and this is uh, principally why Professor Valak and I would not agree, disagree on an awful lot of outcomes, children have a very important interest in the relationship with both parents being supported by the state and in their parents being relatively free in their interactions so that they feel confident and comfortable uh, and unharassed and happy in their role as parents, right? And so those important interests of children give rise to a presumption against uh, any kind of constraint on the parents uh, that could make them feel uncomfortable or that would undermine their relationship with the child or shrink their time with the child unduly in a way that's harmful to the child. Uh, as such, a juvenile court deciding custody ought to have uh, good evidence that parental speech would, in fact, cause significant harm to a child before it uh, imposes a restriction or denies a parent time with a child on the basis of parental speech. In the scenario that I described, I think uh, such a finding uh, could be made sufficiently that it ought to matter to a court that father has these views that could be a, pose a serious threat to the daughter's self-esteem. Let me close by posing a question to Professor Volokh. Suppose that a domestic relations court did not make the best interest finding itself, but instead there was a private party appointed to make that decision, 
the closest model we have today might be a CASA worker, court-appointed special advocates, uh, private individuals who are better trained than almost anybody else in the courtroom uh, to decide what's in a child's best interest. Suppose that the rule were just juvenile court will do whatever the CASA worker says is in the child's best interest uh, in the same way that it does whatever a spouse says is in her best interest in, in petitioning for a divorce. Would you still think that parents' First Amendment rights are relevant in that context? Uh, it might be tempting to react initially by saying, well, since the state would still be appointing that person, they're a state actor. Uh, but then I would ask you how you would differentiate a parent from a CASA worker, because parents, too, are appointed by the state. Right? You have parentage laws and you have custody decisions that decide who a parent will be, how much time a child will spend with these people. Right? So uh, if that kind of private party deciding what's in a child's best interest as a state actor, it would seem a parent is as well, and I don't think any of us want to go there. Thank you. Um, I, I want to address a couple of the points. And the first is this concept that we're stepping outside of the Constitution. I, I think it's very, very dangerous. And number one, the parents aren't incompetent. Uh, they've had a marital breakdown that does not constitute incompetency. Uh, they're, they're the, they are a private party in a sense, but they are the private parties that are the parents of the child. And this, the child does not become the mere creature of the state. And this concept that we take the process and we look through a lens that does not have in that lens the Constitution of the United States, I think is very dangerous. So this idea of stepping outside of the Constitution in and of itself, I think, is fundamentally flawed. No matter where the outcomes are, are coming out, uh, the process, the analysis, when you step outside the Constitution, is very, very dangerous. I mean, the Supreme Court's recognized, as all of you know, for a long time, that the interests of the parents... Uh, in the care, custody, and control of their children is one of the oldest and fundamental of interest uh, considered as fundamental liberty. And even in a divorce setting, and I tend to agree with Eugene here, you don't change the rules. Uh, you don't remove constitutional protection. You'd, the best interest of the child standard, which has been the standard the courts have, have utilized in these difficult situations for a very long time, I think can be utilized and still at the same time protect the free speech rights of the parents, protect the interests of the child. And when you look at the general situations, without going first to the extremes, but in, in most situations, a judge should exercise in these custody decisions uh, regional judgment and common sense. Common sense says if the father and the mother have a fundamental disagreement on the religious upbringing of the child, fundamental disagreement, uh, one of the parents is, is Jewish, the other is Christian. And the court, in looking at all of its factors, including the stability of the child and the stability of the child's environment, makes a decision that the parent will stay with the Jewish mother. I think it's quite appropriate at that point for, in reasonable judging, to say, fine, that custodial parent has the right to raise the child according to the dictates of that religion. However, that does not mean, because we believe in common sense also, that the non-custodial parent, the Christian parent, uh, has to be restrained from discussing why that person is a Christian, uh, why he believes in Jesus Christ, what his views on the Bible are, and it can be done in a way that does not alienate the affection of the child 
from the parents. And I think if that's the standard that the courts have utilized, and I realize it can be quite subjective in process, but if that's a standard that makes sense because we're ultimately trying to protect the best interests of the child, and part of that is maintaining the stability of the environment, then stepping outside of the Constitution or uh, assuming that common sense and reasonable judging can't take place here, I, I think fundamentally undercuts the issues and fundamentally creates a very dangerous matrix upon which we would have to look at these cases. Now, there are extremes. I had one of those cases. I have an extreme case. A parent, um, are both married, obviously, have a child. They are Muslim. Uh, the mother gets very alienated from the father because the father is espousing a more jihadist view of Islam. A custody dispute takes place. And there is a significant fight between the parents on the religious upbringing of the child, and the father is awarded custody. The father that espoused the jihadist view. The question becomes for the court, these are the cases on the extremes, but they do happen. Now what do you do? Because we can talk with reasonableness, and we can talk with uh, common sense, and we can talk about the best interests of the child, but now what do you do? The father has a sincerely held religious belief that, in fact, this jihadist form of Islam is what he wants to teach his children. The mother has a very different view of Islam. The court awarded custody on a number of factors to the father. I think the courts are hard-pressed, absent a provocation of imminent lawless conduct, um, to say that that parent can't raise that child with that view, even though it fundamentally cuts across uh, the way we would think within our traditions. And the outcome in the case ended up being uh, very difficult because the, the father ended up taking the child to um, Saudi Arabia never to return. So the, the tragedy, of course, in that case is the outcome that the, the family unit split and the mother will probably never see the child again. But this was a difficult case. But I want to not have wanted to look at that difficult and extreme and rare case outside of the context, uh, with due respect, Professor Dreyer, outside of the context of the Constitution. I, I, these are not incompetent people. These are people that are making, have made a decision. There are rights to be respected. There are free exercise rights, and albeit a much more difficult case whenever you're dealing with the free exercise clauses, I can attest to from personal experience on free exercise cases. But the free speech cases and the religious free speech case rights are very strong. And absent a very strong, compelling interest that would have to be narrowly tailored, utilizing the least restrictive means. Sounds familiar? It's the test we use in speech cases. You cannot restrict that kind of parental discussion from going on, so long as it's not done in such a way that its intended purpose is really the alienation of the uh, parent-child relationship. And if that's the case, I think the court could fall back to another constitutional standard. It's kind of like reasonable time, place, and manner. There's ways you can discuss things, and there's ways you should not. And you, you hate to get a court that involved in it, but if that's the situation, uh, you could still have free speech rights protected in certain contexts, and in, specifically in these contexts, using regular constitutional principles without having to step outside of the Constitution. Uh, thank you. Uh, let me pose just a couple of questions to the panel, and then we will uh, move uh, uh, to questions uh, from the floor. So I'd like to begin with a question to, uh, to, to Jay Seculo, and based upon his uh, uh, example. Uh, so let's assume we've got a custody fight. Yep. And 
and the judge is deciding which of the two parents to award custody to, may the, is the judge prohibited from taking into consideration as part of the best interest of the child uh, calculus uh, that one of the parents would be teaching this child this uh, dangerous uh, ideology and the other would not? No, I think, it's a, I think that, uh, Judge McConnell, that it is appropriate to uh, look at the religiosity of the parents because in the context of the best interest of the child in this way, uh, principles of neutrality would say the court should stay neutral to it, but part of that overall view is stability in the household or in the custodial parent. There are other factors that uh, made this determination that that particular child would be raised that way. So I, I don't think the court could ignore the religious upbringing of the child. And this is a case on the margins, albeit, but I brought it up for that purpose. It's not an easy case. It's a much harder case, but it's, they're out there. And I think that in that kind of context, uh, the court is not going to ignore, and this judge did not, did not ignore the religiosity and the views, albeit extreme, of this particular uh, uh, parent, the father. But in the overall calculus, the child was raised in a Muslim home, and the judge was wanted that to continue. There was other factors that led to, there was discovery on this, that the, the wife was not really practicing Islam at all, was a closet Christian. There was no real proof of any of that. But this became part of the factors. And it, these are not easy cases in, in that regard. But um, and so it's view, not lawless conduct. So it is your view that the family law court may consider these, the... Uh, ideology or religious yes. uh, views and choosing among the two parents, sure. but may not uh, impose restrictions upon what the custodial or non-custodial parent then says to the child. Correct, as long as it's not done now, with... Is that the same line you, you draw? Eugene? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, once you say, well, this the jihadist can't get it either because he's a... Or we'll consider that as a factor because he's a jihadist. Or one oh, because... Um, uh, this is more consistent with the way the child had been had been raised earlier. Uh, I think you open it up to, to restrictions, not just on jihadists, but on sexists or alleged sexists or on racists or on religious fanatics or on atheists or whatever else. Uh, there is something more appealing about sort of the notion, well, we'll only consider it for purposes of checking out the, the, the child's stability. And I would actually agree that some such rule with regard to older children who express a preference even if their preference is speech-based. I think one of the ch parents said, the ch children says, yeah. look, I'm 14 and I'd rather be with my father than my mother because of the religion the father teaches or the attitudes the father teaches. I think that could be considered. Well, when you're talking about, I don't know how old the child was there. Uh, there were four of them and they were ranged from age 7 to about 16. Okay, fair enough. So for those, maybe there would be the, the preference, the, um, uh, the preferences of the children that might be in play. But when you're talking about religious stability, then you have to have courts decide, well, uh, this, uh, uh, this parent is a, is a Christian, the mother is a Christian, and that's too far away from, from, uh, from uh, Islam. But, you know, the, the father, what about if the father was Sunni and the mother had decided that she wanted to become Shia? Then the court would have to decide, well, is that close enough? What if they're both ostensibly Sunni and the father says, well, but I am orthodox. And she says, well, no, I'm pretty orthodox, too. I just disagree with him on these one or two things. Uh, and my religion is close enough. Once you have decision making as to whether this is religiously too high a break, uh, too large a break uh, uh, from past religious practice, uh, uh, that I think that that's a classic establishment clause of entanglement problem, that it requires secular courts to make judgments about differences and similarity be between religious practices. So, Eugene, you do not even think that this can be taken into consideration where the 
court is not deciding which of the two religious views is better, but the court may not even say that the, that the parent who is going to continue the, uh, the course of religious instruction that, that had been provided prior to the divorce, I, I they think, can't even consider that. I, I think they can consider a child's preference for that, or for that matter, a child's preference to break I'm not talking about child's setting, preference. Setting that aside, no, among other things, uh, mm. uh, that, uh, in fact, mm. much religious practice in, in human history has been people changing their religious views. And the fact that the mother has become a closet Christian. Well, allegedly. Uh, even if she did, you know, that seems to me she's entitled uh, to do that. And nor, now, some people would say, well, there's just sort of a standard presumption that, that changing religious views would be uh, psychologically damaging to the child. I'm not at all sure that that's so. But in any event, I don't think that the changes in religious views should be disqualifying or even well, a factor. Well, uh, Jim, I think your answer to these questions is pretty uh, is pretty obvious, but I'm or maybe you would like to to, to, to join in. But I wanted to ask you about uh, intact families because uh, you express a concern about uh, licensing adults to impose non-mainstream, was your phrase, views upon these vulnerable uh, uh, people who are not psychologically equipped to resist them. But that would seem to apply within intact families uh, as well. How far would your principles allow the state to uh, intervene if, say, school authorities or others found out that parents uh, in an intact family were, uh, uh, were teaching their children in ways that uh, seem harmful? If I can add just a, a friendly amendment, uh, I would think that a girl, I do think it's bad for girls to be raised uh, uh, to be taught that they are, uh, uh, that they should be, women should be subservient to men. Uh, but I would think it's much worse if both parents are teaching her that than if one, if the father is teaching that and the mother is saying, oh, look, don't believe that, I don't. Sure. Right, now, division of, of authority, competing views can be uh, very healthy for a child. And you point this out with respect to the divorce context. And what I've argued uh, with respect to intact families is that schooling can provide the other voice and is a less intrusive way of ensuring that children are exposed to a different uh, set of views uh, besides just what their parents teach. Um, I don't draw the same distinction. So would you intervene, for example, if the parents chose to homeschool right. on the ground that their, that their ideology was something that the state thinks is harmful? Well, the thrust of my first book was that the state ought to be regulating private education to a much greater extent than it is now, uh, and in particular to make sure that Parents do not have a monopoly over children's minds. Even though it's their kids. But what about the homeschool situation? <laughs> I mean, it, these are their kids. So what about the homeschool situation? There is a possessory term that I uh, might not use in this context. But I don't draw the same distinction that uh, Gene and Jay are drawing between ideological and non-ideological speech. I think we would all agree that if a parent routinely says to his, if a father routinely says to his daughter, you are ugly, that the state may step in and uh, try to and impose some consequences for that. In fact, we would do that today. We have this concept of emotional and psychological abuse that local social service agencies can enforce and can uh, impose restrictions on conduct, can remove a child when it gets to a certain extreme. Uh, and I don't draw a distinction between that, you're ugly, and my religion says that you are inherently inferior. I also don't draw a distinction between Jihadist views, you must you know, learn to go to war with whoever. I don't uh, claim to know much about the views. And on the other hand, you should go next door and beat up that kid. Well, mm -hmm. Jim, let me ask this. Uh, 
you know, one possible way to look at this is that there's a very heavy presumption against state intervention of this sort, but to recognize that uh, that there's some things that are so harm, harmful, maybe even in, this, in the field of speech, that they would constitute abuse, but that that is a that's a quite an, an extreme situation, but that there's uh, that the range of, of tolerable, even if not best, uh, sets of teachings in a, in a liberal pluralistic society is very wide, and so there's a heavy presumption against uh, a state intervention. Would that be your view? Yes, and my basis for it is that children have this very strong interest in having a family life that is insulated from outside interference. That is conducive to their well-being, uh, not that parents have some moral or constitutional entitlement to sovereignty and a monopoly but with respect to. Then, their when there's a non-intact family, would you have? Would you also have a very heavy presumption against the state uh, deliberately intervening in favor of one rather than the other? Uh, again, within the range that broad range of tolerable, even if not highly desirable uh, uh, teachings? Certainly a presumption. There are competing considerations here. One is that the marginal cost of interference in the divorce context is less than it is in the case of an intact family. Uh, but on the other hand, parent, the parent-child relationship tends to be more vulnerable uh, in a divorce. And so there uh, is a competing uh, motivation for the state not to, not to disrupt the parent-child relationship further with such conditions. Uh, we will be uh, entertaining questions from the floor if, the, if some would like to get to the microphone. But while, while they're doing it, Jay, yeah, can I, let me, I want to follow up on, on the homeschool situation and the schooling situation generally to kind of get Jim's framework. Um, if you had an intact family or if you had a custody order that said the custodial parent determines where the child goes to school, either one, and the, the parent decides that the child's going to go to a Christian school, a conservative Christian school, but you would call fundamentalist Christian school. And the student, the 12-year-old, decided they didn't want to go there. Do you think the student has a constitutional right to demand that they not go there? The choice-protecting rights of children are a wholly separate matter that would require a different analysis. And I think right now we're focused on interest-protecting rights of children. Well, I mean, would the, would, the would, would the child have the interest right to opt out of that school and go to the public school? I think that the child has an interest-based uh, right that the state restricts the uh, operations and teachings of private schools and uh, imposes academic standards on private schools as it does in public schools. And where would the right teacher, come from? Where would that right come from? The right of the child? Sure. Uh, children uh, have a right to be prepared for autonomy and to not, have their, to not have their personal welfare attacked. Okay. Because my question is, if there's a constitutional right for the child, to, in your view, to opt out, it's interesting to me that the student is in, inside the Constitution and the parent is outside of it. And that... that to me, seems to be. I just I mean, well, significantly, the state is acting on the child, right? So, if you think yeah. about the custody decision as the state saying, "You're you child are going to live here," yeah. right? It's the child that's being acted upon principally. But you can see that it is the, the child. state is not acting upon the child when there's an intact family. The child was born to those parents, and well, the, the decision is some. And the state creates the parent-child relationship and them. confers powers on parents. But I, think that's an, I think that's an important, that's a very important point you know, of clarification. Every state has parentage point, laws. If you wonder why you get to take a child home from the hospital, you need to look at the state statutes to figure uh, that out. Uh, I'd like at this point to uh, move to, uh, to <laughs> questions from the floor. Uh, uh, Jim Bopp. 
Thank you. Um, my question is to Professor Dwyer. In terms of your analysis, you, you, uh, it is apparent that you do not agree with the Supreme Court's line of cases in, in Prince, uh, Pierce, etc., which has established a relational right between the parent and the child where the control parent, right. where the parent has the right to the care custody control of the child which includes the the, the a constitutionally protected decision to uh, guide the education and upbringing of the child now you in your analysis you don't mention those lines of cases or or that constitutional principle at all now is do you think the court should overturn those those cases they were because they're wrongly decided or do you think that they're just simply not apl applicable for some re doctrinal reason well what happened to that in your analysis uh, there are two types of rights the parents claim one is a relationship right to get into a relationship a legal relationship with a child the other is a control right once they're in the relationship to have certain powers over the child's life and the Pierce-Meyer cases had to do with control rights. Uh, I think the outcomes in those cases were right, but the analysis was, is wrong. Parents in a parent-child relationship should be viewed as fiduciaries rather than as right holders. And when they see a problem with the state uh, restrictions on their conduct, and I think the laws in, My in Meyer and Pierce were bad laws and harmful to children and to families, they should assert rights of their uh, children. You are interfering with the educational interests of my children with this law, and you oughtn't to be allowed to do it. Okay. So, uh, so the, may, may I clarify? So your view is the question is who is the best judge of the best interests of the child rather than a conflict between the best interests of the child and some other right? Is that a fair way to put it? I think the parents should always have standing to assert that the state is acting contrary to their children's welfare uh, in court. They are certainly a but only standing, not not well. a presumption that their understanding of the best interests of the child is likely, in most cases, to... to I would grant such a presumption, yes. Next question. Yeah, I guess this is Pro Professor Dr uh, Dwyer. Um, how would you resolve a conflict in a situation, a hypothetical, where in a pure um, best interest of the child analysis, um, if it conflicts with public policy, say affirmative action, uh, segregation, or, or forced busing to different districts, if really in the best interest of the child in the pure manner would be to be around peers like himself, whether it be for race or religious reasons, if that conflicts with public policy, how would you do that analysis and, and why would externalities be irrelevant if they in fact are? Uh, that's a very good question, uh, and it can be difficult for a liberal to swallow the notion that uh, decisions ought to be based purely on what's in the interest of this child without considering competing policies that might be progressive in some sense, right? Uh, and yet I think Palmore, the decision saying in its racial relationship, should not be considered because of the ostracism and the beating up on the schoolyard that the kid's likely to incur. I think that decision is wrong. And it's unfortunate that uh, a decision the other way, that we will take that into account, could have uh, adverse uh, consequences, could uh, slow progress towards uh, better race relations, whatever. Uh, but we can't use children's lives and welfare. We can't sacrifice children's welfare to serve progressive causes. And that's just wrong. We don't force adults to sacrifice their welfare uh, for such purposes, right? We don't make you uh, choose your adult relationships 
uh, in order to promote better race relations or affirmative action or anything else, and we shouldn't compel children to do it either. If I could, by the way, come a little bit to uh, uh, Jim's defense on the, the theoretical basis, and we disagree as to the outcome, but uh, uh, there is a constitutional provision, I think, at play here, and it's the Due Process Clause, which says, and not, not is it read to say, but actually says that the state cannot deprive people of liberty without due process. And the fact is, my boys, four and two and a half, are deprived by the state of liberty. Uh, now, I think it's necessary for them to deprive the state of liberty if my boys want to see five and three and a half, because uh, it's a dangerous world out there and the kids need protection. But there is, there is indeed state action involved in essentially giving parents these kinds of, giving as a legal matter. You might say they have it already as a natural rights matter, but as a legal matter, recognizing a right on the parents' part to control their children. I think that is, a, that is something that is fraught with considerable problems. And I don't think we can just sort of assume, well, there, th- those are, my children and I'm entitled to do what I want with, well, just because of, well, of, of parental I'm rights. I'm curious why you they're... bracket the argument that they have that there's a natural right. Isn't there a difference under the Constitution between rights retained by the people uh, and not interfered with by the government, but retained uh, versus rights that are accorded by given by the government as a matter of positive law? You know, I, I'm not much of a Ninth Amendment expert. I, I can't tell you what, for example, as a, as a first principles matter with Scalia or Tom, or I shouldn't say Tom, Thomas hasn't spoken on about it, but Scalia uh, was right in rejecting Pierce because, uh, or uh, later saying that Pierce and uh, the Pierce-Meyer right is, shouldn't be recognized because it's not in the Constitution. I will say that if we are going to recognize unenumerated rights, a right to control the life of another person is at the very least a difficult one uh, uh, one of, among the more difficult ones to justify. Maybe it would be justifiable, but especially as a broad and largely unconstrained right, as opposed to rather qualified and restrictable, even if not prohibitable right. Uh, I think that's, that, that's pretty difficult because that does run up against, the, against both the notion that, that, uh, uh, the, that uh, uh, children do have some interests of their own as a, as a constitutional matter, and also the fact that if you are going to come up with with liberty rights. Those liberty rights are the weakest when they interfere with the liberty of another, as parental rights must. It's inevitable that parental rights interfere with the liberty rights of the child, although on balance I think it's for good reason. That's why I stress more the First Amendment issues, that I do think there's a public interest involved here that's very important. And that public interest is the interest in not giving the government this, extro- or for that matter, uh, CASA workers, who I imagine will come from a very limited sort of profession with a, with a, with a particular and often homogeneous set of views, and not giving the government the power to constrain non-mainstream views the way that they would be constrained uh, if the government were to say, we're not going to just protect children's rights as to be free from abuse and various other things, but protect their supposed right not to hear views that are against their best interests. Why don't we do that in the divorce context as well? If, If someone files a petition for divorce on grounds of cruelty and says, my husband keeps saying these things to me, should we have judges say, what is the basis for his saying those things? Does he have a religious view that supports that? No, if no. that's the case, we're going to deny it. Well, I think that's, that's an excellent, uh, excellent one. I think that there's a, a clear and tremendously important distinction. Certainly under no-fault divorce laws, uh, a, 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 one second, I'll get to the fault divorce laws in a moment. Uh, no-fault divorce laws, the, uh, the, uh, the law allows one spouse to leave the other spouse's speech, but without passing judgment on the quality of the speech. If you get to fault divorce, such as cruelty, uh, a test, perhaps if there is sort of a non-ideological, he's insulting me, 
that's, that's ground for divorce as opposed to other things or not, that would be fine. But imagine there was a fault law which says, well, you know, um, uh, if he is expressing communist ideology, there were some attempts to do that in the 1950s. I want to leave him because he's a communist. Oh, okay, you can do that. You can do that because, after all, that's cruelty to expose you to un-American ideas. I want to leave him because he's a sexist. Well, no, that's, he's just expressing mainstream views. That would be a pretty serious First Amendment problem if the government were deciding which views are right and which are wrong that way. We, Sorry. We, let, let's try to get in You're one right. final uh, right. question here. <laughs> Hi. It's my understanding that states are increasingly considering, if not enacting, laws that create a presumption towards shared joint custody. And I wonder if the analysis with respect, if any of your analyses with respect to possible restrictions on um, parental rights in, in, in this context change at all depending on whether or not the custody is in fact shared roughly 50-50 or if we have, if the custody is actually much more in the more traditional uh, you know, custodial versus non-custodial parent and if that split impacts how you would look at the relationships. You meaning? Are you directing well, that to anyone in particular? Anyone, right. Given your, given your analyses, I mean, whether or not it makes a difference whether one parent is quote-unquote awarded custody or both of them are awarded custody and whether or not those rights become different and the state's responsibility or at least authority with respect to that relationship changes given that dynamic. I'll do it very quick. I think, that, look, if it's a custodial parent situation, the custodial parent's generally charged with the nurture, care, and upbringing of the child directly. That's the custodial parent and the religious beliefs of that parent. Uh, and if that's what the, that parent wants to inculcate, uh, I, I think that just makes sense. Again, it goes back to the stability of the situation. But that does not mean to the exclusion of the other parent being able to talk about uh, their religious beliefs. So, but, of course, the burden uh, or, the, or the, the upbringing aspect of it, that the custodial parent has more Look, constitutionally or not, has more control because it's the custodial parent. Well, what about the 50-50 custody? Well, the joint custody situation. Yeah. I, mean, we've talked about, I think that's what we've been talking about, that in the joint custody situation. I think that the stability factor of how was that child raised would be a factor that would be looked at. That doesn't mean, again, you don't not talk about the different religious beliefs of the parents or no religious beliefs at all. You don't do it to alienate the child, but to ignore it as a factor, I think, ignores common sense. I, I wouldn't really uh, uh, consider. Uh, I, I don't think it makes a difference to my analysis of joint custody. Do we have time? For I think one more. Your, your discussions so far have been in the context of uh, essentially conflict resolution. But uh, are we leading to a time when there are, for, better, for want of a better expression, consenting adults agreeing in something that the state might take a dim view of? So, for example, a man and a woman agreeing that a woman is simply... Uh, Adam's rib, and that she exists for the uh, sole benefit of her male counterpart and bringing up daughters with that. Uh, can someday a social worker have standing to come in and say, this is per se not in the best interest of the child. The state should interfere with that. Are we getting to that? And I say this, I ask the question with trepidation since I know one of your panelists has written extensively on slippery slope. Well, I will say that there is, a, uh, there is a case from Indiana, I think from a couple of years ago, where there were two Wiccans, so neo-pagans, who divorced. And one, speaking of mainstream, I think the judge used the word mainstream. He, but he in, uh, instituted an order, sua sponte, neither of the parents wanted this, barring the, the parents from exposing the child to any non-mainstream religion. Now, I think Jim, uh, that order was reversed. I agree with that. Jim, I think, would also agree with that. But I think Jim would say, well, it's because, in fact, it's not harmful to be raised as a, as a pagan. I think that's right. But the question is, speaking of slippery slopes, 
What do you get when you, whether in the divorce or non-divorce context, allow judges to decide which ideologies are harmful and which are not? That, it seems to me, is the danger. That once you say, well, you can't teach your child sexist views, what other ist views would another judge at a different time or a different place uh, 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 conclude are also against the child's best interest. And again, remember that over the last several decades, as I said, uh, even something as relatively, what I would think of as relatively anodyne, although perhaps not, as a parent being less religious than the other, than the other parent. I think even religious people might say that's probably not something that's tantamount to child abuse, uh, is, um, uh, was considered. Alas, the uh, hour that was allotted for this uh, subject has now come to an end, and I'd just like to ask the audience to join me in thanking the panel for an interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you.